I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Lots of women particularly, but a lot of people get to a stage of their executive career where they think, I might try boards. And I think that's a mistake. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. You know, so many people say to me, they don't really understand what is a non-executive director and what's the delineation between, for example, in the jargon of the business world, they talk about the ELT, the leadership team. But in the old school, it was the CEO and the management team. So that is these days executive leadership team. But break it down for me. What's the difference? What does a non-executive director do? And what's the board structure as opposed to or in relation to the leadership team? It's a great question and it's an important question because they're very different roles. And for many years, I was a member of an executive leadership team in a number of organisations. And those teams led by a chief executive are in the constant business of doing things and running a business or running an organisation. The board or the non-executive directors led by a chair is in the business of governance or, as I like to think about it, stewardship. Steering the business. Steering it. You're, you're not in the daily doing of the business. And it's generally people who have spent a long time in business or in organisations in those roles as executives and now want to have a time to be more strategic, to bring, some would say, the boring stuff. For me, it's kind of interesting, but it's how do you help the chief executive and the team deal with strategy, manage risk, think about the long term. And it's probably a very important link between in the private world with investors. So investors, shareholders, look to talk to the board or the chairman or chairperson as a link between the good governance of the organisation and the work that the management team is doing led by a chief executive. So if I could distill that down, you're really a guiding light. You provide guidance, key input to make sure the KPIs are on track. If it's a corporate board, a publicly listed company, you ensure that it, for example, meets the targets listed on the ASX for company performance and and you guide the leadership team to make sure they stay on track and do as promised. In a big way, that's what boards do. And in fact, the most important decision that any board has to do and doesn't get to do it very often is the appointment of the chief executive. So if you're lucky enough to be on a board during that process, that's a job of the board to ensure that the person leading the company, running the company, is the right person for the time, has got the right skills, the right values, and says something about the culture of the organisation at that time. So once you've got your chief executive in place, then the board typically, and we meet much less frequently than an executive team. So it's not a full-time job. You come together as a board to oversee performance against the objectives. You're constantly checking for the things that tell you about the long-term value of the organisation, things like the state of the culture. Are you hitting the things we say we're doing? How How do our customers think about us? What's going wrong that we need to understand to help reset and make sure that the governance and that the risk that the company's taking, the decisions the chief executive's taking, 
on behalf of shareholders, has got a, a de- deal of governance with people who understand what's going on in the broader community, what you're really holding the our management team to account. And I think more recently, actually trying to interpret the social contract or the what are the expectations of the organisation that come from a more diverse group of people looking at a, a community or a society and thinking about the company in that context. When I look at the number of boards you're on, diversity is the key. And I guess it's been the hallmark of your career. Now, you started, you grew up in a family with an army background, moved around a lot. And you've often said that that's given you a resilience and a curiosity and also an ability to adapt quite quickly to new environments. But why did you choose the board path when you had a successful corporate career? So this is a question that it's worth unpacking because I think lots of women particularly, but a lot of people get to a stage of their executive career where they think, I might try boards. And I think that's a mistake. I think you have to be very purposeful about the decision to move from executive full-time life to a portfolio of non-executive life. And I went through that process very deeply as I was leading Insurance Australia Group, where I'd been for eight years on the senior team there. And I'd had a long career that had had moved around a bit, but I'd spent a lot of time inside big corporates, both here and in the UK. And my daughter was still very little. And the end of my time came at IAG for all sorts of reasons. And I came to this critical point of, would I keep doing executive life somewhere else and, and think about that? Or was it, did I think there was something else that I could do in the next sort of decade of my life where I was us- using my skills a bit differently? As well as meeting the needs of your daughter, Lottie. Correct. So for me, it was a, it was a bit about both wanting to be an active, participating parent which is hard to do, even though we've done much to make sure that there's flexible work for women and men who have children. It's still not easy as senior executive life. I didn't see myself wanting to be a chief executive at the time. And I, I really had had the best executive job I think I'd ever had. And working for an insurer in the time I did with a leader like Mike Hawker, who was my boss there, we opened up the whole sustainability and corporate life links around climate change and social issues and gender and a whole lot of things. And I couldn't imagine another executive job where I would be as enthralled and engaged. And so I didn't want to just go and do another executive job. And I also realised that what we've been doing at IAG was a bit of a, um, it was giving us a sense of what the future of companies could be. And at that time, a number of chairmen were wanting to diversify their boards. So I was very conscious that you know, I became an interesting candidate for boards because I was a woman with executive experience and some broader background and chairs were looking for women to join boards. And I had served from 2005 on the AFL Commission, which is effectively a board of a professional sporting industry. So I sort of knew the difference between boards and executives. So I thought about it deeply and thought, actually, the next decade of my life, I think I've got a lot to bring to a stewardship role rather than an executive life role. And if chairs are now looking to diversify boards with women, I'd like to be in that cohort and show why we've got to break the mould of who is a director. It was typically uh, a white man who had been a senior executive in a company who had sort of retired into non-executive life. And I thought it was important to stand up and go into that environment, and as, as I'd done in footy, and bring something to show that there was a different kind of director that should be around those tables. And so it was a very purposeful decision, and I was lucky that there were a couple of chairmen who approached me and were looking for a person like me to join their boards. We'll get to the AFL in a minute, but the perception about being a non-executive director is really, yes, you've got a calendar of board meetings you've got to meet. And if you're on half a dozen boards, your calendar appointments are written, you know, six, 12 months in advance. But equally, the perception is you turn up for a range of meetings. There's so much more to being a director than just turning up for meetings. Absolutely. And that's why I say people who decide to become directors shouldn't do so on the basis of a lifestyle choice. 
you have full fiduciary duties, you are accountable not just to shareholders, but a broader set of stakeholders. You're certainly accountable to regulators, and I think you're accountable to the people you're working with to be a fully deployed person interested in the business of the organisation that you're governing. Actually, most of my meetings are set probably now 18 months to two years in advance because the complexity of getting people together is tricky. And so I look at my diary and I can see where my board meetings are, but the board meetings are very, it's not a small part, that's the time we come together, but there is so much work that's going on all the time to remain engaged with the business, remain across what the business is doing between meetings and understanding what is the particular skill set and interest that you bring to the board and making sure you're at your very best when you're around that table. Well, I'm presuming a lot of our listeners may not you know, have an understanding about how boards work. And for my little part of the world, I've been on the board of Hockey Australia for five or six years. And what I discovered is, yes, initially was turning up for meetings, reading all the papers, but you're actually required to fulfil your role properly, to investigate the business on an ongoing basis throughout the year, constantly be across all the detail of the business so that when you get to the board meeting and you've done your reading, you actually can value add. Boards are often divided up into a number of committees as well, aren't they? So you're not just committed to your board role, but the numerous committees that are associated with all of those roles. Absolutely. And then, of course, you'd find this with your board, that you go out and actually enjoy the work of the, of the organisation. So you probably go to games, you probably go and meet the staff and, and try to get a feel, a visceral feel for how the place operates. And so that's what, you know, with my boards, you're out in the business quite a lot or doing site visits. Increasingly, over the time I've been a director, the responsibilities of directors for the health and safety of the workforce has become a critical and very central issue. That started with just physical health and safety, so lots of visits with Virgin to go and see how safe our airports were and how our safety standards were, were being played out with our teams. And the same with construction companies like Mervac to actually go and see the work sites and observe at close hand whether we are a safe place to work. But now that's all about mental health and about um, not just physical safety, but psychological safety and the reports we now see on how we have to prevent organisations having cultures that allow bullying, the mistreatment of anyone, whether it's women or people who have different cultural backgrounds. So if you can't sit around a table meeting every once in a while and pretend to think you understand the place if you haven't touched the culture of the organisation. But there's so much to get your head around. So, for example, if you're not an expert, you know, in psychology or mental health, you're not an expert in uh, workplace diversity, for example, you know, the construction industry and, and health and safety. I mean, how do you get up to speed with everything you need to know? Because you can't be an expert in all fields. No, and boards of directors have a range of expertise around the table. And, for example, at Mervac, I have no property and construction background. But when I joined that board a few years ago, I looked around the table and realised there were people who absolutely had that skill set and had deep engagement in the sector for many, many years. So my job isn't to try to be like them. My job is to bring my set of skills and insights. And you used the word insights before. Boards are best when they're bringing great insights and asking the question from a different angle and challenging management. So the idea of a challenging question as opposed to being difficult, but asking the unexpected but important question. So you do spend quite a lot of time thinking about what do I bring that I can uniquely add and, and listen to what else goes on. But then it's observation. If you've been around a long time and you've been inside organisations, those site visits or going into the organisation and sitting and chatting to people at different levels of the organisation, as a good director, your antenna is always up for a signal. You know, when I sat with that group of people, did they look like you know, they're not allowed to talk to me? And if that's the case, is there some kind of power dynamic here that means we don't talk to the board? Because that would be that would say there's something else going on about we don't share news up and down the organisation or 
if you walk around and see people behaving in a way, you know, off jokes or there's some stuff on the walls, you say that's just not consistent with our cultures that we hear about at the board. You can have that conversation. So board life does mean getting to know your organisation and I don't think you can sit on a board without caring about it and being an advocate for the organisation, particularly if it's one that's out in the customer space. And to believe in it. And if you, if you don't, you can't do that just turning up to meetings and reading the papers. I think what you're also saying is that the skills matrix of a board these days is so critical. So you can't be all things to all boards. But for example, what I you know, arguably brought to the hockey board was a sense of what perception of media do, how it works, what community means and a personal love for hockey. And so I picked up other learnings along the way. But that skills matrix is really critical now with all new boards, isn't it? Absolutely. And in fact, talking about a sports board, I mean, hockey, it would be like many different sports. For many years, these boards have been run by great volunteers who came from the sport. And it was about another act of volunteerism to be on the board and lots of great insight about the sport. But as you say, you bring something that the sport must understand from a community perspective. A connectivity to the corporate world, understanding what KPIs they'd be looking for. For example, from my perspective, they're interested in sponsoring hockey. What do they want? Well, they want data. They want analytics. They want to know what your footprint is. They want to know what your reach is and what value can you bring to them. That's right. So I imagine your chief executive would be listening very intently when you're around that table to go, I need to understand that. And Sandra's bringing that particular thing to the board. You're being very generous. I'm sure that's the case because (laughs) if you want to assess a company or an organisation and its preparedness to really understand where it sits in a society or community, look at the composition of the board and say, does that look like a group of people who've got the broadest sweep of understanding of the world in which this organisation operates? And get a grasp of what those optics look like and how that translates. Yeah, for, for many years in this country, we seem to be quite happy that companies could be run by a group of guys, you know, who in many cases were about the same age, probably had fairly similar backgrounds, fairly similar educations, really good people who came out of business. But you think, how would they have ever dealt with the conversations about what really happens inside an organisation that's got huge diversity that actually interacts with society, if you, haven't, if you don't have someone around that table remarking or pointing out or challenging on how, do we, how, do, how does this organisation behave when it comes to what, whatever the, the issue might be. And homogenous groups have all sorts of faults. One, you're, sort of, you're in your own bubble, but you're also reinforcing each other's views. And it's very, very difficult for any homogenous group, whether it's all men or all women, to actually be the one person to call things out because you kind of break the rule of the tribe. I've seen many times when the new person arrives on a board for the first time and asks the difficult questions, someone from that existing group will say, I'm really glad you came in to do that because I've been wanting to ask that question. But homogenous groups have a way of, and it's not deliberate, it's not set out to to not be interested and engaged. It is the problem of a group of like-minded people reinforcing each other's biases and, and understandings. And that's what we've seen with the rise of much more diverse boards and now why there's so much pressure from investors to say we want to see boards that do represent the broader society. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And diversity doesn't just mean women. No. What else does it mean to you? So for me, it's, it's sort of if it, if it doesn't have gender balance or at least some, some acknowledgement that women have a role to play, there's an issue. But that's so for me, there's now a new starting point that the board should have women on, on it. And there are plenty of very, very talented women who should be on boards and, and were kept back for a long time. But it should have a range of cognitive skills and experiences that complement one another and are quite different to one another. Increasingly, I think there's an issue about some boards needing a younger cohort of directors that can understand technology, understand the world we live in. And whether that's on a main board or advisory boards, but having that insight brought in as a governance matter, not just inside the company. I think we've got a big job to do on cultural diversity. So we are one of the most exceptional multicultural countries in the world. We rely heavily on multiculturalism for our success. It is not reflected in Australian boards broadly. Go senior in anything in this country, and it's still a predominantly white environment of, of leadership and power. And we are wasting so much talent. We have almost no representation of that cultural diversity in senior boards in the ASX. There's a little move there, but many of the people who would like to be on those boards who come from a different background would say, I kind of know that I'm not, in the, I'm not in the club or I'm not in the sights of the recruiters. That's a big miss, I think, still. I do try to break down a lot of assumed knowledge. And when people use the word diversity, people bristle and they go, oh, yes, women banging on about women again, or ethnic cultural diversity. But can you give an example of where that's played a critical part in a board decision? You know, when, when we talk about diversity, it's always a numbers game. And I actually think it's far more than that. It's actually about the outcomes and a broader understanding about what your constituency is about. So if you're a publicly listed company, it might be your audience, your customers, and talking to them. No, that's right. And there are so many examples I could use because it is about being a better, being able to govern and lead an organisation and not be in a bubble of privilege or not understand how a society or community operates. So reflecting your audience or the community you work with. Yes. So I'll give you, I'll give you a, a gender-based example, and it's probably most, most obvious for me. When I joined the AFL Commission in 2005... You smashed that ceiling for all women. Well, it was a quota appointment. The then president of the, or the chairman of the commission, Ron Evans, had to have the constitution amended to make the appointment. They went out and interviewed 10 women across the country. We were put through the most extraordinary processes of checking that we could actually survive in the commission which no man appointed to the commission to that date, had been put through because the men on the commission, all good men, all very fine people, they were able to use their relationships and their understanding of each other in their networks to always vouch for one another. So there hadn't been a process of having to actually go through. I think in the end, um, to get to the end and be a final candidate, there would have been four separate interviews with different people being tested on not just our corporate experience and governance, but even checking that we understood footy. And you'd think sure. that the 10 women who, put, who were prepared to put their names forward had a good grasp of the game, but we were tested on that to, to an extent. But when I arrived, and I was very lucky to be that woman appointed because there were remarkable women in the mix, I think the men at the table were glad that they'd broken the barrier of not having a woman before. But when I first started talking about women's football, because I'd been approached by a number of women really great, talented women players who were playing in state leagues or playing locally, saying, we've been arguing for forever for the same rights as the, as the men. We'd like a league of our own. When I first raised it, that group of men kind of thought I was, I'm sure they thought I was mad. 
and their view was, well, no, women don't want to play the game at this level. Women don't, no one will watch it. It won't be attractive. That's not what we expect of women. And because the men around the table, as I said, all good men, didn't have a point of contact with the women's football community. So I was going out, as then did Linda Desso when she joined the commission a couple of years later. We made it our business to go and reconnect with the women's football movement and watch and listen and learn and take their message into the commission. Now, I just don't think you'd have an AFLW competition today had there not been women on the commission because the, 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 the structures and the power of what it would take to actually create that league and do it well required information inside the commission and then in the, the management team to believe that this was a great opportunity. And not only were we representing, I think, women who wanted that respect, but inevitably we were bringing a piece of information about the future of the game and the industry in total. Yeah. You know, this was a game that was, is competing with all forms of other entertainment. Other sports were doing great things with women. The AFL didn't have a product that allowed a woman to play all the way through. And so we've seen that not only has the league in the last five years honoured the role of women players, but the market for football has opened up. And the fastest growing markets of participation in the northern states that weren't already AFL aligned is driven by communities and families who said, thank you for now letting our daughters... We want to play. We want to play. We want to go and watch this kind of footy. And it's a brand of footy that people really enjoy. So it's part of the the solid future of the game. But it wasn't part of the thinking of the strategy with a group of guys sitting around thinking about football through a men's lens. So not their fault, but that's, that's a diversity of thought being brought into the room. Deliberately. Deliberately, through a quota, continuing to appoint other women. That was a condition of, I said to Ron Evans at the time, there's great honour in being the first, but there'll be no honour in being the only or last. So we need more women on the commission. Of course, the next thing that's needed is cultural diversity because sport, as you know, mm-hmm. you know, sport is one of those great things that's played across great our community. Leveler. It's a great leveller and to not have any cultural diversity. And so for a, a game that has relied so heavily on Indigenous, Indigenous players, no Indigenous commissioner until a couple of years ago. And so if you ask why could the commission make mistakes about what happened to Adam Goods, to, um, despite being a strong advocate for Indigenous issues, no lived experience led by a, an Indigenous person on the commission table or until Tanya Hosh arrived in the management team, no Aboriginal person there to actually say, let me just <laughs> give you the lived experience that you can, you can actually understand what it is you're doing as governors of this industry. And how important that funnel of talent is, and it's substantial. And to ignore it is just dumb. Well, you, you, can, you can celebrate it the way sport does, but if you don't then back it in and say, now we want pathways for those players to get inside the, the media system, the training system, they're going to have jobs after playing, just like we do for other players, and we'd like to see them on our television screens and hear them on our radio and the calls, but we'd like them to be in our governance structures. They should be on the boards of the club, on the AFL Commission, running the state leagues. Why is there such a huge uh, sense of the role of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players, but they're not pathways? So something goes wrong. So that's where I think diversity of thought, diversity of experience, a lived experience of what it's like to be outside the club, to bring that forward and say, we need to do better, and here's how we can do better. That's diversity at its best, I think, is it's just it's finding the voices around a table of influence that can make the whole organisation pivot and say, actually, we can be much better. And we need to take into account the things we've sort of ignored or avoided because we haven't had that voice at the table. A lot of people will take for granted some of the challenges of the last 15 to 20 years. Now, you were appointed to the AFL in 2005 and it took more than a decade to get the Women's League up. Next year, every club will have a women's side, which is awesome. But do you remember the first day walking into the AFL? Was that some sort of baptism of fire, I can presume? And the weight of expectation, did you carry that? Were you aware of that? 
I was very aware of it. The process itself was clear about the weight of expectation and how historic this was for the league. It's a very traditional community of support, of not so much the supporters, but the governance of the game. It's a very traditional set of structures and, and people involved. But Ron Evans and the commission and many of the presidents wanted this change. And there were already women um, who had been doing remarkable things on the club boards and really were pioneering the governance of the game and, and were bringing great expertise into those clubs. Um, I'm thinking of the Western Bulldogs and Essendon particularly. There was a weight of expectation. I was appointed... Uh, they announced the appointment actually in Sydney when there was a big Sydney game. So my first meeting was actually in a big hotel room where they were having the Sydney meeting. And it was more for me to observe for the first time the group of men I was joining. But I will always remember walking into the, the boardroom at AFL House in Docklands for my first meeting down there. The room is what I, I think company boards used to be like with a room full of gilt-edged framed portraits of men over the history of the game. They're glorious, but there's certainly no, no women in those portraits. And it's steeped in football history. There's, there's everything you can imagine about the trophies, the cups, and to the game as played by men. But the good thing was the commissioners themselves were very, very welcoming. They were a really interesting, engaging group of men. I really I felt welcomed by them. The chief executive was Andrew Dimitriou. The current chief executive was then the COO, Gil McLaughlin. And I think the senior men kind of liked the idea that a woman had arrived, but I think some of the team kind of thought, still don't get why this is happening, why? why? Because it, it had been a, a world just dominated by a men's view of the sport. And so I was very conscious not to set the wrong standard by arriving and just asking the women's questions. So I, I did a deal with myself that I would, I would really want to be involved in the game and in the questions about the rules of the game, the, um, the fans, the things that really that weren't about being a woman in the room but being a governor of the game as a commissioner. And I loved the game. And so um, I had a lovely first a couple of, during the first meetings, there was a big blow up over a, a siren that couldn't be heard at a game that was played in Launceston. And I happened to be the only lawyer in the commission at the time. And I was able to give them a framework for unpacking this issue from a legal perspective. And the guy sat back and went, you actually bring value. Like, <laughs> as if it's an epiphany. Yeah, because I wasn't there. Because I think some probably would have regarded it as we're now having women come and talk about the issues that women think about. So it was important, I think, from an expectation point of view, to be fully deployed on the issues of the governance of the game. I worked hard on that and also found that every time a question was thrown at me and then subsequently the other women who joined the commission around bad behaviour of men, when they'd turn, you know, if it was a, a sexual harassment or a sexual assault or, that, or something of that character, quite often the room would tilt towards the women to say, well, what do you think we should do? And I think um, the women over time have sat, sat on the commission have had a similar response, which is, no, hang on. We're not here to be the mums or the girlfriends or the wives at this moment. We want to have a collective discussion about what do we think we should do. So therefore, as a group of men, what yeah, do you do. think about this? Because it's not the job of the women on the commission to deal with those issues that are difficult and complex as if we've got some sort of, that's our job here. Collectively, we have got to deal with the behaviour of, of our players and the behaviour of our industry. And we'll do that together. We can help and do that collectively, but we're not there in that role. And I think it was important to establish that we were there as full commissioners and setting that tone. I think it, it, it did create a pathway for the other women to join as, as full commissioners, not to suddenly just always represent women. Do you think that time at the AFL Commission opened some other doors for you in the board world? Undoubtedly. It was actually quite a complex thing to unpack for me because I joined in 2005. I was still a full-time executive at Insurance Australia Group. 
And that's the thing about executive life. Sometimes you can have one non-executive role, which this effectively was. But I became acutely conscious of the fact that if you are working in an environment where the powerful men who are networked and, and make things happen and connected, if, you're, if you do your job right, you can become part of the, the recommendation type of system that's always existed. So I was acutely conscious of that and I didn't want to take advantage of that at all. But it gave me a deep insight into what happens when you've got groups of people who do know one another very well and are happy to recommend. And if you're outside that, so I'd been outside it as a woman, but goodness me, if you're outside of it because you're not powerful or you're not connected or you're not part of the elite that make those decisions, you're not ever going to get into those kind of corridors or boardrooms of power. So I, I learned early that you had to keep searching for the people who most needed to be in those rooms and be purposeful about it. So for me, the diversity story is one of who do we need around this table who's not here, not represented, and how do we go and find that person? Because we can't just rely on our own networks because that'll take us back to privilege and to connection. And so it's a harder job. It means you have to think more deeply, but it does mean you have to op- consciously open up pathways. So for women who are listening who are interested in board roles, what's the best way to connect to that blue blazer privilege set? I mean, how do you break through? Well, I think fortunately we're a bit further advanced than we were back in the, the mid-2000s, but it's still not as easy as it should be, I suspect. I think women have got to be clear about what they want and why they want it and then be a bit braver about putting themselves forward and whether that's ringing recruitment firms and saying, you know, I actually think I'd make a very good director. Here's my CV. I'd like you to put me into contention as board positions come up because recruiters and, and headhunters are often utilised by boards to find directors. So there's an act of sort of putting yourself forward and women often don't. Often we sort of think we'll wait until someone approaches and in non-executive life particularly, that's not often what happens unless you're in the connected group. So I think being confident about the decision and being clear about what the skills are that you bring. I'm not a great fan of the go and do a, um, a volunteer board and prove yourself before you get there because that's not the advice given to men. I think if you want to do volunteer boards, that's great and you should always do the things you care about and put yourself into those organisations where you really want to do that work. But if it's going to be your career and it's going to be the, the way you think about yourself in your working environment, actually stepping up and saying, and, and I, I tell women often contact other women directors or directors generally who've shown an appetite for change and let them know you exist. Just make that call, have a coffee, build the network and put aside a little bit of that nervousness or that sense. That reticence. That reticence, yeah. And it's a, I think there's a new cohort of directors coming through, um, men and women, who would say, we'd love to, you know, we'd love to sit down and have a chat to you and once we know about you, be an advocate or an ally. Um, that's particularly the case for people who have, have been kept out. I, I think that's for Indigenous men and women who should be, we should have many, many more First Nations people around our governance tables and, as I said, much more cultural diversity and that kind of cognitive skill set, that different way of looking at the world that would bring a really important part of how, you, how good decisions are made around a table. Break it down for me. What's the difference between a non-executive director and an executive director? So a non-executive director is the classic board member. You have no executive responsibilities. You have all the governance responsibilities. An executive director is typically the, and quite often it's the chief executive, is also the managing director or the executive director who sits on the board, but his primary role is to run the organisation. So executive directors are typically full-time people in senior teams. They might have different names and you do get executive directors on boards who who are full-time. But being a non-executive director doesn't eliminate risk. So what deliberations do you take before you decide to become a non-executive director of a board or a company? 
Well, you have to be very clear about the why. So why this company, why this organisation? And generally that's about a, a deep interest in the sector or a belief in the brand or the, the organisation. Then the next step, I think, is always to do your own due diligence. What is it about this company or this organisation I need to come to grips with to know whether there are some um, tricky things that have gone on in the past? Culturally particularly, does this place have a history of treating people poorly? Have they had lots of discrimination cases against them? Is this a, an organisation that's been before a Royal Commission and found wanting? And what was it? Particularly in the financial services sector, you're sounding up to incredibly prescriptive and very clear responsibilities to the regulators. And so you're a responsible person with fiduciary duties, which means ultimately the buck will stop with you if there are failings and faults in the system that then hurt customers. And when you say the buck stops with you, I mean, financially, you can be risking your own personal wealth, can't you? Yes and no. I mean, one of the things about the liability of directors is the system was created to ensure that people, good people, and this goes back um, hundreds of years, the, the limited liability company structure means that the directors themselves have limited liability and most of the liability sits with the company itself and with the insurance that sits behind that. It doesn't mean you can rest on your laurels and think, you know, I've, I've not got anything at risk. You've certainly got reputational risk and there is some financial risk in that, and we've seen this recently with boards that have not performed well, Directors can be removed immediately, chairman stood down, so you lose your income. You may go through a regulatory review and you have to spend a lot of time before those, those bodies. You might find yourself in court with the costs of court. You're probably, you're probably insured if you're in a large company environment. Lots to think about. So I always think, where would I want to spend so much of my time and my reputation to do good? And is this the organisation where even if things get tricky from a, a strategic point of view or the, the business we're in, I'm prepared to take that risk because I've got really strong faith in the culture of the organisation, its values, its ethics, the people who are around a board table. I trust them. I like what they've done in the past with, with the chief executives they've appointed. I get a really good sense that this is a trustworthy place. If you don't go through that analysis, if it's just about getting on boards, you can make some very poor decisions and find yourself sitting around with a group of people managing really tough stuff or finding yourself reputationally caught up in things that have gone wrong historically because of a poor culture or, or a lax view of regulation. And, and ultimately, I think more and more boards get that they've got to be absolutely clear about the role in the society. So that's the whole ESG movement and the corporate social responsibility that the boards are now being held to account around a contract with the community about why you exist and what you've got to do much further than just being the, the financial guardians of the organisation. When you were made president of Chief Executive Women, your passion and support in principle for quotas, was that a problem? I personally think quotas are the only way we're ever going to get there, and I gather you agree, but lots of women don't. I wish we didn't have to have quotas, but quotas work when the hopeful sense of structures and processes being put into operation, if they don't deliver, you can't just sit back and say, well, that didn't work and we move on. There's got to be a purposeful moment to say we've got to fix the problem. And in the case of women's representation or people of colour or in any, anything where that diversity quotient is really important, the quota works. I'm like you, I'm a big supporter of it, but there are a lot of women. And in fact, in the months after I was appointed to the AFL Commission, I went to events in Melbourne where I thought I was going to be having conversations with women who'd been long-time supporters of footy, footy club boards to say, great, congratulations. And in fact, quite a few of them came up and said, we hate what you've done. We would never do it. And can you see what you've done? You've made life really awful for us because no one will ever know whether your appointment was the equivalent of a man because you weren't tested against a man. 
And so how do you know you weren't just, it's just the quota, but you're not skilled enough. What did you say? Well, I had to get over the shock to start with and then realise that this burden that women carry and had learned to carry that the word quota was forever linked with lack of merit. So the, the sort of idea of merit and quota had been linked for a long time as if the quota meant you weren't meritorious because you hadn't been tested against the full pool. It's a false argument. It puts a huge weight on women who are quota appointments. And I always say to women, the issue is not who you're compared to, it's your belief in yourself and the process that the quota works to address. And you've got to have confidence in putting yourself forward that when you arrive, you will be the best you can possibly be and show that, you know, you, of course, you are meritorious, that it's a, this false discussion about quotas can't be meritorious. And remember, women in this country are the most highly educated women in the world. And we're 51% of this population. Something must have been going wrong that we have seen that cohort of women, highly educated, peter off into almost no representation in our senior ranks. So there was a quota going on and it was about men appointing men. And that's another element of your false argument, isn't it? When you consider that the men never had to jump through the same hoops. That's right. And so I say to women, try to put aside the weight and the, the loaded nature of the word quota and just think, I want to be in that room. I want to break the barrier of, and ensure that women's voices are heard and other people's voices are heard. I'm going to do the best job to show that, of course, I deserve to be there. Of course, I should have been there all along. But try to brush off the idea that somehow the way you get there is determinative of your skills and your right to be there. I can't think of appointments where women have done any less than any man appointed, but confidence and belief I think is important for women. And I respect the women who criticised me because it was, I think they really wanted to see women compared to men and women prevail as a kind of proof point. But if, we were, if, we hadn't, if that quota hadn't been um, introduced in 2005, I don't know what would have got the first woman into that room. I just, I just don't know, other than the good grace of someone saying, I know someone, which is back to the network as opposed to a process of being very purposeful and clear about what skills. Because with that quota, the chairman had 10 criteria we had to meet of things that weren't currently represented on the commission. And none of the previous men ever had that criteria to meet. No, well, they, had, they, they would have had conversations about, you know, he's done this, he's got this background, and they would have satisfied themselves that, that they had everything covered. But when they did the list for us, it was someone who had to be legally trained because they didn't have any le- lawyers around the table, so legal qualifications, confident in corporate environments, dealing with risk and, and big transactions. So th- Your hopes were that much higher. Yeah, well, they, they were because the quota was seen to be such a revolution. But the commission and the, and the chair and the members of the commission at the time knew that whichever woman, woman walked through the door after the process was highly skilled and brought something new apart from our gender. It was, it was also these other skills. And that's the benefit of a quota. You can get to say, this is what we're missing and we've got to purposefully seek it. And then the person appointed to have confidence that forget about the label. You're then in there and do the very best job you can and, and then advocate for the other missing pieces of experience around the table. Are you hopeful for the future? I'm always hopeful. I'm naturally optimistic. I'm a pragmatist, so I think that's why I keep thinking about the challenges that we need to overcome to be optimistic. I think we've got to play our role as best we can, wherever we can, in our sphere of influence. It's important that we're optimistic while we're doing that, but we've got some big challenges. And I I think Australia's a country of ingenuity, and we can do so much more if we do trust ourselves and get some of the basics right and fix some of the things that would then release the kind of energy and enthusiasm I think this country is capable of. Sam Austin, I love your head. I love your heart. You bring such wisdom to your role and to us today. And thanks so much for sharing the essence of who Sam Austin is. Thanks for coming into Short Black. Thanks so much, Sandra. 
You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.